0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: Hello and welcome to the newly merged Commonwealth Club World Affairs of California. My name is Stephen Saum and I'm Executive Director of Strategic Communications and Content at St. Mary's College. uh, But maybe more relevant tonight, someone whose life has been um, intertwined with Ukraine for the past three decades. Now, before we start, I'd like to invite the Consul General of Ukraine in San Francisco, Dmytro Koshnyuruk, to say
0: a few words. Dmytro, let b- time b- b- um, time about it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Stephen. And uh, thanks to Commonwealth Club and all the organizers for hosting this uh, important event, important for Ukraine, important, we hope, also for the United States and for everyone. Um, tonight, on the behalf of Consulate of Ukraine, I'm honored to uh, present and to say a few words at the beginning of this Highly acclaimed documentary, 20 Days in Mariupol, directed by distinguished Ukrainian director Stislav Chernov, who has just, uh, this weekend, received the Directors Guild of America Award for Outstanding Directoral Achievements in Documentary. And this prestigious um, accolade underscores the film's powerful narrative and Chernov's unwavering uh, commitment to capturing the harsh realities of Russian war against Ukraine. This compelling film, recently also nominated uh, for an Academy Award for Best Documentary, as you know, and we, we hope it really can win because it absolutely deserves it. And it provides the uh, um, perspective of the early days of uh, Russia full-scale invasion of Ukraine, which happened in, in the first months in Mariupol. So as you know, an uh, attack by Russian, Russians on Mariupol, uh, it was the largest city which Russia actually managed to occupy eventually, because the city was basically on the border between Ukraine and Russia, and it was very, very quickly uh, surrounded. So it was not like an easy target for Russian forces. And uh, it was the most tragic siege of such a large city uh, in the first months of the war. So the city was population of uh, half a million people. It was also almost completely destroyed. Uh, almost no buildings were left untouched and damaged. And uh, it brought numerous um, civilian casualties, including women and children, and uh, attacks on hospitals, of the theater where people were hiding. So all those powerful stories and awful stories, which were also in the media at that time, which are not, uh, unfortunately, in the American media right now. Um, so these were all the, the things, the evidence of Russian war crimes. And uh, after Russia finally captured the city, they have been hiding, trying to hide all these consequences and um, trying to demolish all, all the buildings which have been damaged just to hide any traces of what happened. But this documentary uh, is the best example of how the journalists can prevent it from happening. And also, as you know, the defenders of Mariupol, our soldiers, They were defending the city, but then they moved. They were forced to move to the Azov steel factory, which was also in the city. And they were um, under the ground. uh, And they were for a very long time. And despite all the bombings and all the attacks, Russian forces could not capture them. And only after Ukrainian command gave them the order to save lives their lives and the lives of the women and children who were hiding together with them to surrender Uh, only in that time they really stopped the resistance, and uh, they surrendered. But then majority of them were exchanged during the prisoners of the war exchange. And now, are. but not all of them, some of them are still remain in Russian captivity. But those who were exchanged are already back on the battlefield because they're really heroes. And uh, so, as the stated press team under Chernov's uh, leadership, finds themselves during the movie trapped in the besieged city. And they were documenting all these atrocities of war. So this film, 20 Days of Mariupol, is more than just a film. It's the compelling testament to the impact of journalism and the resilience of individuals in the face of the adversity. And a film is hard to watch, and it should be. And it should be hard to watch, though the, its episodic structure makes it somewhat easier to watch from day one to day 20, uh, one at a time, from the first bombs to finally the team's flight to safety. So, as, uh, as uh, Steven mentioned, the screening will be followed by Q&A with the director uh, himself. And uh, thank you very all very much for coming. Thank you for your support. Please continue to having uh, Ukraine in your minds as it's very important for us. Thank you.
1: So it is my pleasure to introduce tonight's guest, Mr. Slav Chernov. Mr. Slav is an Associated Press journalist and president of the Ukrainian Association of Professional Photographers. Last year, he shared the Pulitzer Prize for public service, and 20 Days in Mariupol is his first feature film. It won the Audience Award at the Sundance Film Festival last January. It's been nominated for an Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature Film. London Film Critics Circle named it Documentary of the Year, and it's been nominated for a BAFTA Award. And Mstislav Slavchenov was recently honored for directing the best documentary by the Directors Guild of America. So Mr. Slav Gyakui, thank you for being with us and for sharing your powerful documentary with us, for telling the story of the city, for chronicling these stories, and for joining us here this evening. Let me start off for noting for our audience here, right, we're coming up almost on exactly the second uh, anniversary of the beginning of the full-scale invasion of Ukraine by Russia. When you made the decision, Mr. Slav, to head from Bakhmut, where you were at the time, to head to to Mariupol, um, the first person that you have an encounter with um, is the woman, and what you document in the film, you tell her that the Russians are not targeting civilians. Was that a belief? Was that a hope?
2: I remember, so it was first person on camera, but before, I remember before arriving to the city, we made a few stops. It was already night and, uh, first stop we made to buy spare tires.
0: Yeah.
2: And we woke up this man at 3, 3 a.m. and we were like, we need at least two tires. And he was, well, why do you need tires in the middle of the night? And we said, look, the war is going to start. Shelling is going to start and that means shrapnel and you need spare tires. And he was like, you're crazy. But yeah, here is a tire. And then we went to the supermarket and we bought a lot of food. It was like a lot of food. And again, it was the same reaction. The people buy in the middle of the night a lot of food, like many, many bags. And <clears throat> The shopkeeper said, "What's going on? Why are you buying this food?" And I said, "Again, the war is going to start." And she said, "You're crazy." <laughs> so every step of the way, every person who I spoke to before the war started he kept saying, "This is you know nothing's going to happen. Everything's going to be fine." And I remember when it's already it's already started. I we went straight to several hospitals. It's look. It's all the experience talking i've been through several wars and i know how things unfold and we've been in ukraine this war started eight years at that point eight years ago for for all of us so we kind of knew what to expect more or less but again I, we went to the hospital uh, to that hospital which you saw and we spoke to the chief of the hospital and i said if things gonna go bad, could we stay here? Could we come later and stay here? And she said, Nothing's gonna go bad. Everything's gonna be fine. Don't panic. And it was kind of reflection of what everybody felt and everybody hoped. And I also hoped for that. So that's the reason why I am telling people. But I remembered I responded to this doctor and just we were about to leave her her office and she said, but what do you think is going to happen? And I remember, I said, do you remember Aleppo? Do you remember Grozny? As a doctor, I think you should pre- prepare for this. And unfortunately I, I was right. So I, at that point I was hoping that I'm wrong, that things going to go better. Uh, but they, they didn't. But then again, what do you, how, what do you tell the person who panics, right? You want to, you say go to the go to the basement. Hide. This is the first thing you need to you need to do. And look, I want to thank you for coming here. I I know we are all being bombarded by by tragedies every day, and not only from Ukraine. And it's easy to not to care. It's easy to just to close yourself from from everything and to live your life. But you you did make a choice to come here. You did make a choice to, to to care. And I think indifference is, is the biggest enemy of the modern society. if the modern society will keep ignoring that there is every day, there is more and more tragedies in the world and, and it's on fire. If we keep ignoring it, then it's one day is going to be too late. Uh, so yeah, thank you for your care. I really appreciate that.
1: On on that point, there are a, a couple moments where you want to talk about Vladimir, the the policeman, right? Because he delivers that message in Ukrainian and, and in English, hoping that maybe it can bring things to a stop. And then later in the film, though, you say it's to to make give some some meaning to the. All the tragedy that's that's befallen the city. Um, I think a lot of people here may not know. I mean, you, you've you've um, you've you've kept in contact with, with with Vladimir. What happened happened to him after after you fled the? the city?
2: Yeah. Um, so first of all, that that hope that Vladimir has that things going to change. Um, it, it always he inspired me his drive, I think that drive he had is, um, it still has, um, has helped us a lot, helps us survive ultimately. But at that point, when he was saying that, and I expressed that thought in the film, I I felt that nothing will change much. And unfortunately I, you know, we both, we can see that things are somehow worse today than they were before. And Mariupol's story is not a story of Mariupol anymore. It's the story of Bakhmut and Avdivka and Marjinka and Soledar and Vuhledar and Volnovakha, Popasna. You know, I can keep listing the cities that just destroyed. So things are going, things are worse. Mm. Uh, and still, he believes. He, um, kept uh, his service going and doing his work, his police work uh, in Pokrovsk uh, city in Donbass. And a couple months ago, he went to help injured people who were under the rubble after the Russian strike. And the second rocket, a double tap, hit the same place. That's what they usually do. They hit... Um, a building with the rocket. Then when services, rescue services arrive, a second rocket hits and hits the rescue services. So he got hit by the second rocket and um, his lungs were pierced by Shrapnel. His body had a lot of injuries and um, he went through recovery. We thought he's going to die, um, but he survived and he's recovering. And I think just today I saw a picture from him that he's already again going to to these places and trying to help civilians we actually i think ninety percent of all people you see in a film we we found or they found us or we found them, and we followed up with those who who survived and uh we we told their stories in our investigations and in our follow ups throughout the the year so Mariupol was never just 20 days. It okay. stayed with us and it, it, we keep telling his story. We keep in contact with people who are still inside Mariupol. Uh, just two days ago, that's, yeah, that's one of the examples. Two days ago. So there's a moment in a film when um, we arrive at a fire fire station and it's bombed and there is a boy under the rubble and his mom is looking at him and I didn't know if he survived or not. And we couldn't find him for very, very long time. And just a couple of days ago, I received a message on in Instagram from, from his relatives that, uh, he survived, not only survived. He, he's now in, in Chicago and going through a recovery process. So, so it's amazing how people find with the film, they find their way to us and all the stories kind of make sense. Uh, recently, the boy who you saw, again, another boy uh, who you saw near the maternity hospital after the bombing, the one who was scared and looking for his mom. Uh, we found that family uh, in, in in Europe. So his mom was injured and they, they lost contact with her. And his sister gave birth to a child. And after that, they were hiding for <coughs> for weeks uh, in, in, in the basements, in a shelter. And then they tried to leave and then they couldn't because she didn't have a birth certificate for, for the baby. But Russians wouldn't. And she didn't want to make a Russian birth certificate for the baby. And Russians wouldn't let them out from the city without a certificate. So they ultimately got away, uh and now they are in Europe, and they came to see the film. So, what's interesting is that more people I meet from Mariupol, more I hear from them that they have a, such a hard experience to of explaining to everyone around them what exactly they went through. It's very hard to understand that that experience, and when they have a film, when they have this film, they have they have a way to explain that they have a way to, to, to tell the story of what happened to them. And then we screened film for, um, for IDPs, from Mariupol who lost their city when they moved to Dnipro, uh, they moved to Zaporizhia or Kiev, we organized screenings for them just for Mariupol residents. And I thought it's going to traumatize them at some point, but on contrary, they, they went out of a cinema and, and suddenly they started telling me, uh, how much hope they saw in a film. And I didn't really understand how is that, you know, what, what, hope. And yeah, so first they experienced this together in, in more or less safe environment. They've experienced their tragedy, but they've experienced it, it's, co- it's collectively together and actually if you if you look again if you see the film and at every moment of suffering every moment of tragedy no one is ever alone you always they all people in the worst moments of their life they always have a doctor or a neighbor or sometimes a journalist you know just some hugging them and being together and i feel that that sense of community is actually what community and and shared identity is what uh helped people to get through these tragedies, but also helped Ukrainians to fight back, not to you know fall apart as a nation but to to come together and, and resist at the moment when it seemed that Yeah you know, we we're against the enemy which was much bigger, still much bigger, but still people resisted.
1: Well and that and that question of identity seemed so fundamental at a time when you have an aggressor wanting to erase, erase your country, erase that identity, deny that it, that it's real. Yeah.
2: Deny that it even exists. Right. right. Yeah.
1: When you set out, um, to do the work in, in Mariupol, right. You, you did not intend to, to make a film. You were reporting the news. Um, but, but even how you approach that, that changed in, in a moment that's, you know, a, a really tragic, tragic moment in, in the film. Um, talk about that, and, and why why you came to understand what was happening differently in this historic sweep that you realized um, was was happening all around you.
2: Um, so I've been through six wars already, uh, and and I know how the most. That's what I told you in the in the beginning. We are bombarded by tragedies and different events and. Uh, as a journalist, I see how how even the most important moments in history or in uh, or for specific people are just being washed away by this sea of information and misinformation. Sometimes, so I I know that how that happens, and especially when we left already, when we broke out, and I had this thirty hours of footage. I, I knew the story of Mariupol will be forgotten. Just it will stay maybe in headlines, but it will be just just headlines. And I really wanted to preserve those tragedies. I felt like I have to. I owe this to 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 people who saved our lives, who helped us, to people who lost their children. So I wanted really wanted it to not to disappear that's when I left. But in a moment when we started reporting, of course I was focused on, and that's my main work at that moment. It was my main work at that moment, just to be, be sure to send everything I see uh, to uh, to my editors. And I know that it's being distributed across the world. And at that moment, it felt like something, and I say that in a film, I feel like it was a history in making, It a history uh it uh, was a historical moment in in Ukraine's in Ukraine's modern history and it felt like actually a ground zero of a third world war okay well i hope i'm i was wrong and i hope it's it's not the case but it did feel at that moment like things can go uh, things can escalate further than just ukraine and they kind of did i guess after the mariupol hospital bombing after the maternity hospital bombing that was the moment when i when i understood how important the story of mariupol is you know how symbolic it is that's when i thought okay well everything has to be recorded every single minute because it's not just news this is this is just bigger than me bigger than uh, about mariupol and that's where you actually even in a film you can see how style of editing changes how the uh the shots become longer so this is a kind of it's, it's a conscious shift to another medium already to another kind of storytelling
1: and one of the things you do capture connected with the bombing of the maternity hospital is then the the russian disinformation um, that that comes along with that and, and one of the members of the audience here actually wanted to know has have have people in Russia been able to see the film? Have you heard any any reaction or response um,
2: uh, i it is I'm sure it's available for them um, th- There is one streaming service I think that is available in russia that is um, i think' it's current current time uh, streaming service. Uh, so they are able to, to access it if they want to also, you know, if they use VPN, they can, whether they want it or not, I'm not sure. And, uh, but it'll, it'll be there when, when they will want to see it. And I hope they will see it. But what's happening is, is that again, recently we found out that after Mariupol got occupied, Almost immediately, Russians have sent film crews to the city and they started filming a scripted version of the events. So these months, and it's not a coincidence that our film is gaining visibility and it's a, um, It's a sad anniversary of, of, of the beginning of the full-scale invasion. They are releasing film, which is called 2022 Mariupol. Scripted version of their events shot on their, on, on the location, on, on occupied city. Very well produced, very well made. And they are screening it in their central TV uh, for, for millions of people, which will see only that version of reality. And I think that hence the name, if you go in, in their search engines and you will Google 20 days in Mariupol, guess what you're going to get. Right. So it's, it's actually, I laughed at the beginning, but then I thought, oh my God, this is actually very scary. Well,
1: I think perhaps, perhaps it's a, um. Kind of a a, a terrible coincidence also within the past week, Human Rights Watch and In Situ and Truth Hounds released a a big report on on Mariupol. A two-hour interview with Vladimir Putin also dropped, uh, courtesy of Tucker Carlson. Um, Talk about the the, the information and misinformation and the the importance or, or meaning of truth right now.
2: Um, okay. I have a strong belief that we are as journalists or documentary filmmakers cannot and should not engage in a fight with any kind of propaganda, because as soon as you start doing that, you are getting on the, le- on their level and therefore you're, you lost, you know, ne- you will never have as much resources, uh, as, as, uh, a country which creates their own version of the events, the only thing we can do is to keep working and keep providing enough context to to the as big audience as possible um, to to kind of make sure that events are not misinterpreted because we don't live in information in the in the age of misinformation it's the age of misinterpretation it's the, the Pictures of, of of maternity hospital bombing were as much in the Rus- on the Russian TV as they were uh, on on the Ukrainian TV or in, on the TV in US. It's just the the text over it was was completely different and that's why documentary films are important because they do provide much more context than than the new, than 1 minute or 2 new, new minute news pieces uh, provide and it helps but it's not enough this is the, this is a complex uh, issue and of course we are talking about not only about what we are as journalists are doing but also we talk about uh, systematic education of of of, a, of a younger generation or not only of uh, young people but just a systematic a systematic education of 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 active civil society of how to distinguish um, misinterpretation and how to how to just navigate in this um the complex uh, narratives like Dozens and dozens of versions, and add here uh, new AI, um, deep fakes, and all all the new technologies that will be serving purpose of of the propaganda. So that's that's something that we have to figure out uh, quite urgently, actually.
1: So what can this is a, a big question but I, but I i know you've you've thought some and talked some about it what can the fi- the film do and, and what can't it do um because you know I'm, I'm thinking of the timing of when you received the directors guild of america award and and what happened in the kharkiv region on the same the same time
2: yeah i i remember that that evening i was looking i was looking at my phone i was reading news from kharkiv and uh Then, you know, I was called on the stage and I had such a mixed feelings about it because uh, I was reading how the family died and three children were burned alive in their home. And then I have to go on a stage and receive awards. And I feel like this is not helping at all, anyone. Again, you can't it's the same feeling as as i have when i'm in mariupol you can't stop a bullet with a camera you cannot stop a catastrophic bleeding by taking a picture and you stay there and you just watch child die and then you feel useless absolutely useless and that's that makes me so sad and angry even when i start thinking about it but then you have people who who just grab you in the middle of the street because they see a sign on your on your helmet, the press sign, saying "film this, film this, or mm-hmm. film me." And it's not because they believe that it's going to change something; it's because they want to be heard. And when, when it does a lot for for people just to just to know that they are heard, it just gives that they're not ignored. It gives them. Energy to keep fighting, to keep surviving. And that's already a lot. And then there is this uh, immediate effect. M- maybe uh, what you send and what you're actually able to to break out of the siege helps to negotiate the Green Corridor. We know now that those images helped to negotiate the Green Corridor for uh, for civilians to escape. I mean, of course, not only because of this image, it's because of immense efforts of different governments and NGOs, but it helped. So, okay, if, if this saves one life, then, wow, that's already a lot. So that's an immediate effect. For the film, yeah, if this film didn't exist, then only this scripted Russian version would exist. And it just scares me because history is not how it happened history is how we remember it and uh, we have to make sure that we actually remember th- things how they how they happened and i, I hope that film adds value to, to this collective memory we will have uh, in future as ukrainians or as humans around
1: well following up on that and unfortunately it's we have, have time for just this, this last question, and an audience member wants to know. So, what, what more can we do, right? People here in the audience, people watching.
2: Yeah, uh, hmm. uh, I, I am. Um, I have a lot of answers to that question, although I would prefer not to not to tell them because I think uh, everyone has to figure out for themselves what to what they want or how much they want to do. But again, as I said before, it's about indifference. If 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 we are all able to to fight that indifference, it will really help. And we all will do that in our own way by talking to people, by by supporting NGOs, or or by voting for for someone who represents our opinions. This is all different ways to to do that. It's just important to remember that why i keep saying that indifference is dangerous because here's the fact now if you look at russian media you you, you mentioned a uh, famous interview and it's seen within russia very differently how it's seen from outside i am being in ukraine all the time reporting all the time from ukraine until now i can see how russians or how how the Russian government explains to their people why the hell they do this thing? In the beginning, was absurd uh, a suggestion that they are denazifying uh, Ukraine, that they are protecting Russian speaking population. Well, everything you saw in this film, every almost every word spoken there was in Russian. They didn't really protect Russian speaking population. On contrary, they were killing them. So what they tell to their people to justify the two years of the invasion now they say that they are at war with us and with europe they are openly motivating 120 or more people million people to uh, with the thoughts and they're bringing kid bringing up kids with that thought that they are at war with you and with, with Europe. So a huge country with, which in these two years transformed in, in a war machine which produces a lot of weapons, which has nuclear weapons in store and making more of them, uh, and making alliances with other, uh, countries which happily will go to war. This country is preparing for real war with Europe and US and, that is why the indifference is dangerous. Because the longer we all choose to ignore that, uh, harder it will be to to catch up with the fact that our neighbor is, you know, invading us. That happened to Ukraine. You know, we all choose to ignore for a long time that there is a danger right next to us, and now we are now we are in a difficult position.
1: Well, please join me in in thanking Mr. Slav Chernov, director of 20 Days in Mariupol. And if you'd like to support the club's efforts in making virtual and in-person programming possible, please visit the website, commonwealthclub.org. I'm Stephen Sound. Thank you and take care.
0: You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher.